Welcome to the Sin of Our Fathers podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kuhn, joined as always by my oldest brother, Michael Kuhn. Hello. And my middle brother, Matthew Kuhn. Hey, guys. The Sin of Our Fathers podcast is brought to you by the new Barbasol Shave Club, featuring the premium Ultra 6 Plus Razor. Barbasol, the brand trusted by men for nearly 100 years to deliver a close, clean, and comfortable shave. Visit Barbasol.com today to order the new Shave Club kit. Use discount code BROWNS at checkout and receive $2 off your initial shave kit order. We're going to save you $2, and you're going to get great razors and great shaving cream. Use discount code BROWNS. So the Sin of Our Fathers um, is aptly named Sin of Our Fathers because um, our dad was a Browns fan, our granddad was a Browns fan, and we love to have our granddad on the pod every once in a while, except for in the offseason. He doesn't really have much to say. So um, if you're going to be listening over the next couple months, you might not hear Grandpa that much because he doesn't follow that too closely. But after the games, great listen. He's he's good to get an occasional off-season uh, bit of input from because you never know what might come out of his mouth. But <laughs> more importantly, we're down in Mobile today. Had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Um, went to the uh, Senior Bowl for the first time. and Had thought, a stupid idea. <laughs> maybe. But it was fun. It actually turned out to be a good idea. It was fun. Um, we were hoping to get to practice yesterday, but unfortunately it was rained out, so there was all the practice was closed off to the public and the media. So um, we just hung out here. Had a, We did a podcast yesterday with Pete Smith, who's one of our um, fans and comes on our podcast all the time. Um, you can listen to that. That's up. Um, and then we went out and grabbed some drinks with him afterwards. That was fun. Um, big fan of that guy. Big fan. Absolutely. And then, so we today ended up being our only day actually watching practice when we fully intended on having two full practices that we were going to be here for. But it was pretty great. Real crappy stadium, Lad People Stadium in the middle of Mobile. It's got some charm. It has it's lots of charm. It's endearing. Lad Peebles. It, yeah. It's awesome. It's free and open to the public. Anyone can just walk straight in. There's no, there's nothing there. You just walk in. You could have brought a cooler of beers, whatever you wanted. Yep. That's what we're going to do next time, no doubt. Um, and <laughs> Media credentials and a cooler of beer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how you doing? Yeah, we're Sin of Our Fathers. Let's go. Let's do so, this thing. It really was funny how like there was not, didn't seem to be a single security person anywhere near the stadium. Like I didn't see anybody that looked official as you walked there's, in. There's no gate. Like I mean, You don't have to have a ticket. You can just walk in. So there's nobody like taking a ticket or like checking and making sure you are who you are. And there's no security. You just walk right in. I mean, they let three John Dorseys just like walk straight on in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is a fence around the field with people manning all the gates. So you can't get directly on the field, but you're standing on the field just outside of a gate and you can get right up close to the action. I mean, it is, you're just watching practice. So it is, it is a practice, but it's entertaining to see all these prospects that might potentially be Cleveland Browns. No, I think it's, it's a fun event because you're you're sitting there. I mean, it, there's no frills. Yeah. Like like it's not it's not meant to be like a spectator event. But if if you're into it, if you're nerding out about football, if you are interested in rubbing shoulders with people who nerd out about football, whether that's media people, draft nerds, yeah. front office people, like they're all here. We were just and, speculating about like what the breakdown was of the people in attendance. And I would venture to say it was about a third NFL people and scouts, if not more, about a third media people, and about a third spectators. Yeah. Yeah. There was probably only I a don't know where we fit into that category. I think we're spectators. probably spectators. <laughs> yeah. Wearing <laughs> stupid John Dorsey stuff. <laughs> yeah, we were we were so excited that we got a picture of that Kyle Brandt responded to our tweet at him. Um, and the Browns, the Browns gave us a little shout out, which was kind of nice on Twitter. Thank you, Cleveland Browns. Yeah, that's fine for me. You show up dressed up like their GM. Apparently, he gets some love. Yeah, I might needed, do it again. Well, I think I do think they needed some positive press and some positive media today <laughs> after the uh, the article that dropped this morning. We'll talk about that later. Hashtag DP. <laughs> Matthew, no, no, thank you. I'll pass. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was a blast, and we got to see the. Um, the North was first, the North practice was first, and then the South after that. Um, just watching a bunch of drills. Um, the North, uh, the Raiders coached the North team, and then San Francisco coached the South. And I'm curious, I, we were talking about that. I don't know what sort of offense and defense do you guys think they institute in this short, it's such a short period of time, you can't really. It's a shell. 
I mean, the the whole Senior Bowl is geared around showcasing the talent to the NFL teams. The NFL teams just want to see if these guys playing on a on the same field, how they stack up. Because you've got guys from Louisiana Tech playing against guys from the Big Ten and guys like that didn't even play D1 that are here at the Senior Bowl playing against a more equal level of talent. And so the whole thing is set up to help the scouts and help the NFL teams evaluate the players more equally and evenly. And yeah, some of the press that I've seen Jim Nagy, who's the executive director of the Senior Bowl, do has talked about how involved like the front offices from the NFL teams are. Like they have their in, own in selecting the roster and actually selecting the roster. So the Senior Bowl has their own scouting staff. They kind of pare down who they think should be invited, and then they basically like vet that with directly with NFL teams. And he was saying it was something like 18 teams he had direct conversations with to kind of like go over his board and figure out who he wanted to, to invite and bring out here for the game. So if you kind of think of it through that lens, I don't think the system and what they're playing like matters as much, as much as like setting up practices and setting up the games to showcase all of the players and like actually have. So I'm guessing it's a pretty vanilla scheme that's yeah nothing close to like what you'd be running on a sunday as far as like the variety and like the intricacy of just trying to physically see if these guys can hang with each other at this level especially the smaller school guys i want to know how they're like calling plays like what terminology are they using or are they literally just calling it in in like layman's terms like we're gonna, we're gonna wide run receiver to the one, right. run a post, a wide counter. receiver two, run a curl. <laughs> like, you know, or, yeah. or do they actually institute have a like a, a basic like verbiage package? Because these guys are coming from all different systems. So even even the most like basic, basic package, you can't guarantee that people have used before or any any way familiar with. Right. No, I feel the same way. Yeah. I, was, I almost think they, they probably just the play clock isn't the same. So they probably just, it's kind of loose. They just call it in in layman's terms and call it out. Like backyard football. Call they're, out they're, the protection. They're literally it, yeah. drawing it up on the whiteboard right before. That's what the quarterback has. It's <laughs> a whiteboard in the huddle. Yeah, instead of the <laughs> wristband, it's a little whiteboard. <laughs> just, All right, here speak, we go. Speak, speak. All right, Dabo, you're going to run a fly. Well, let's talk about some of the players. I mean, we're like far from experts on this sort of thing. So we're like, just like any of you probably listening to this podcast, as far as like evaluating the talent. But it definitely, I felt like being there in person gave you a different perspective than if you just kind of watch the coverage you get to see on TV or NFL Network or through, you know, social media. No, it's great because you can watch both the different, all the different position groups doing drills at the exact same time. Your eye can go wherever it is. You hear the crowd react to things. There was a fight. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, Dalton Reisner, who is an offensive tackle. I actually really like that guy. Against Zach Allen. Uh, Against Zach Allen, who's a defensive end out of Boston College. And they kind of went at it for a little bit. It was was feisty. That that first practice, the North team, was a lot more lively than the second practice with the 49ers. There was a lot more energy. Yeah, the whole thing. I don't know if it's just because it was like earlier in the day. It was was like the middle of the day. It was a little warmer. But like they... I, it might have just been the John Gruden factor. It was a faster tempo. Yeah. <laughs> I could, mean, yeah, it really could have been the John Gruden factor. If I had to put my money on a team, it'd probably be the North going in right now. Although Based the, on the tempo, I don't know. Although the quarterbacks the, looked a heck of a lot better on the, the, on South, the South team. team. Yeah, yes. Grant Minshew is probably the cream of the crop. Gardner uh, Minshew. Gardner Minshew. Sorry, uh, but even like Stidham like looked okay. Yeah, and uh, Stidham looked good. Outside of that. Not a lot, but both of those guys looked better than anything that the, the North team's going to roll out North there. team actually looked miserable from the quarterback side of things. And fortunately for the Browns, we don't give a crap what the quarterbacks look like because if we draft one, it's not going to be until the very, very end of the, end of the draft. Yep, and that's the thing is this podcast is primarily a Browns-centered podcast. So we went to the Senior Bowl to take a look at some of these guys that the Browns might potentially be drafting. So let's take a look at that different position groups that are positions of need for the Browns that we could get first, second, third round, anywhere in the draft. Um, but one of those, I think, is wide receiver. What did you guys see, particular wide receivers, that you want to call out um, and talk about, saw good things about? I think this is, like honestly, the position group that we might see some overlap from Senior Bowl to the Browns roster at the end of the day after the draft. Because I, I see the Browns, they're not going to dedicate an early 
um, draft asset to wide receiver. So I don't see us doing that in the first round. But anytime after that, that's like the when you would see the Browns actually selecting someone, and that's where these senior bowl guys kind of fall in in those middle rounds, like late day two, um, day three type picks. So my one guy that just I didn't even hadn't even heard of until he got the late call up to the senior bowl is the receiver, and this is probably not what our uh, Ohio State Ohio friends want to hear. Um, but honestly, I didn't know a whole lot at all about Terry McLaurin, and he like completely jumped off the field today. Like there was not another receiver the entire day between the North or the South team that really like stood out as much as Terry McLaurin did. And everything I've seen from anybody talking about him is he didn't get that many opportunities at Ohio State just because of the talent that was there and who was in front of him. But he was a great special teams player, and he was separating every single time I saw him out there on a route and making really good catches. He seemed like one of the better route runners, and the ball would pop whenever it hit his hands. You could hear it was making solid contact. Stuck there, yeah. So if and Michael, you said that you heard that he was one of those late ads because the NFL teams wanted to see him. Yes, it's true. Jim Nagy, I heard him on a podcast or something. Basically, when they had an open spot at receiver, he got a bunch of feedback from NFL teams wanting to see him. So I think there's going to be a desire for him. I still think he's going to be a mid to late round, you know, draft I, pick. But I saw that he met with the Bears, and apparently that went really well. And I think he's he's one of those guys that could climb. And there's going to be a team that that likes him maybe more than others and picks him and I can er- see it. early day two, you know, like end, end of the second round, early third. I mean, to be out on that field, if you like clearly stand out from the competition, like I think that's saying something. We've seen it in the Senior Bowl the last few years. Like two years ago, Cooper Cup was the guy that just like every single time he caught everything that went his way, he was running crisp routes. Everyone was like, this guy is clearly an NFL receiver. You could just see it. This was two days in a row now that Terry McLaurin has looked like really solid. And he had a good first day of practice, and everybody was raving about him yesterday from the tape. And then we got to see it firsthand today. So I liked him. Did you, is there anybody else that jumped out to you? Two guys on the, the South team um, that we saw, we were making fun of him for his weigh-in, but Hunter Renfro, like, he he's not physically imposing. You can, you can watch on Twitter, he... he um, in kind of one-on-one drills with a defensive back, put a move on a guy in the end zone to, to catch kind of a post into the corner of the end zone. and um, it's, it's just confirmation it's just, bias, though. You love Hunter Renfro. I do love Hunter Renfro because <laughs> if I was ever to succeed playing college sports, it would have to be like the, the path that Hunter Renfro took. Um, Except your hands are a lot bigger than yeah, Hunter Renfro's. I, I have a solid three-and-a-half-inch Bigger hands than Hunter Renfro. And he's still better at catching a he, football than How you. does he catch it? How does he catch it? <laughs> I don't know. It makes no sense to me. Practice. It reminds me of that SNL skit with Kristen Wiig with like the, the tiny baby doll hands. Popping the bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he's he's just crafty and good and quiet and, and dominant, and he, he he's gonna be what he's gonna be. Like he's never gonna dominant's be a, a strong word for Hunter Renfro. But like dominant in practice, like in there, like you're gonna get him out on the NFL field, and he's never gonna gonna dominate there, right? I mean, he's not As gonna be your number one receiver. receiver. He's not gonna. Um, he might lead your lead your team in receptions, but he's probably not gonna. But so could Jarvis Landry lead the league, you know? Um, but he was good. I also thought Debo Samuel was good. And he's looked good all week. He, like, really popped on the first day, I know. And Dude's he built like no receiver I've ever seen in my life. He had a couple of really contested catches in the end zone whenever they were running, and like, red zone drills. Real squatty, Debo yeah. Samuel. And fast. Yeah. He kind of looked like C.J. Anderson in the playoffs, but a little more cut. <laughs> yeah, not as much gut on Debo Samuel. Um, not as much gut. But you, I would love to see his career receiver, progress. A wide receiver that was as squatty as that would just CJ. be the funniest thing to see. I would love to see his career progress, like eight years from now, be the body type of C.J. Anderson playing wide receiver. You know who else probably deserves being mentioned is Mark. Who was that little tiny guy that was on the North team that practiced first? Hart. Andy is – oh, Hart, yeah. Yeah. Um, Out of Georgia State. Yeah, mm-hmm. Penny Hart. Penny Hart. Yeah, he's he was tiny. Quick. He the was, smallest guy in the field. And was, that's with Andy Isabella out there too. But Penny Hart was definitely the smallest guy on the field. Penny Hart was the s- smallest guy on the field and he was returning punts and he had a couple really good catches in 
from returning punts, had to go back and get one, caught it high over his head, had to come up and get one, like, at least 20 yards under hit, and he caught it clean. And obviously those little guys, you're going to have to be producers on special teams, especially coming out from a small school. And I think he had something to prove, but he proved it. He was creating separation. Nice crisp routes. Like, really good, very fast. And he was, like, contested catches. He was getting the ball whenever it was on the sideline and stuff like that. And so I was impressed with him. Yeah, all the guys that stood out were, like, the smaller smaller receivers. Yeah, it was fun to watch him with Andy Isabella, who um, Pete said – Yesterday on our podcast that he really likes a lot. Um, Everybody likes freaking Andy Isabella. But you know what about Andy Isabella? We looked at him a lot. And he de- he definitely would get some separation. Like, he looked very athletic. He was on the upper tier of the athleticism and speed spectrum, I would definitely say. But when the ball got to him, he did not seem to be a very natural pass catcher. He was like, catching there was, in on his body a he'd lot. He'd catch him on his body a few times. He would have to kind of double clutch. Like, he'd have to stop it with his hands and then have, like, a second catch. Mm-hmm. Like, it was not sticking to his hands in any way. Um, Which and, is not what you're looking for from a small receiver. You need them to get their arms all the way out. They're not going to be able to get it We need them to body. catch it and turn up field, right? If you, like, want them to get some play after after the catch. So I, I think the athleticism and, like, he's talking about how he's been clocked running in the four twos, which is absolutely insane. If that happens at the combine, like, he's probably still going to get all kinds of looks. But it's definitely concerning to look at the way that he catches the ball it doesn't seem particularly natural if you run a 4-2 no one's going to care about how he catches the ball he also john ross (laughs) interestingly enough he has the most interesting uh thigh to waist ratio he is got some big old thighs which is probably why he's so fast his his thighs are huge but they're very short yes he is very short they're almost as wide as they are like long Large, large circumference. Um, all right, anyone else uh, from the wide He kind of waddles as he walks because yeah, of that. Yeah, they're rubbing together. You I know? think the only other one we saw that like friction. we had any sort of commentary on while we were watching was Jacoby Myers, receiver from uh, NC State. He's mm-hmm. a guy that's kind of interesting. Um, he was kind of the second wide receiver at NC State. And um, I, so I don't think a lot of people know much about him, but I've heard some people talking about how he came in as a quarterback, so it was kind of raw. It kind of reminds me of Terrell Pryor, and I saw him running routes, and he kind of had that same look about him that Terrell Pryor did. So he, I don't know what he, Mark, Jacoby Myers, can you see what he weighed in at? Yeah, um, I have. North team. Myers. Um, um, so he's listed at 6'2", 203. He's pretty yeah, Pretty he's tall. six foot one inch and six eighths. Okay, so and one one ninety six. Yeah. Um. So he didn't didn't breach two hundred, but he looked big. Just it's from like a lot the, of the receivers were small. From the eyeball test, like he looked like a big receiver. Yeah. Um. So he's just an interesting one to keep an eye on. I think going forward, um, we'll see. Um, if he gains a little bit of steam, but of of any of the larger receivers, I think he was the only one that was of interest to me. You know, I think I'm interested in getting, um, if Penny Hart's name gets brought up in a late to mid-round um, situation, you get someone that's going to be have a chip on their shoulder. He's a small wide receiver. He comes from a small school. He's going to be a producer on special teams. That's someone that I think can contribute to the Browns organization. Matthew, and you made the comment he seemed impressive that he to me. reminded you of um, what's-his-face. He looks like Taylor Gabriel. I mean, yeah. he's, he's rocking number 18. He's only five foot eight. Yep. <laughs> he's just a tiny little fast guy who runs good routes. He's thicker than Taylor Gabriel. He is. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's 5'8", 180. Which is amazing because he's also taller than Taylor Gabriel. To think that Taylor Gabriel it's five, he's like 5'6". He's, he's in the small. NFL yeah. and has consistently made a, a career at that size. It's just incredible. Yep. All righty, so let's move on from the wide receivers and let's talk about um, offensive linemen, offensive tackles perhaps. Um, I think that's probably where where we'll go. We could reasonably see ourselves draft, drafting an offensive tackle. We could use some depth at left tackle and right tackle. Yeah, I think the top guys that are here at the Senior Bowl are Andre Dillard, who's um, an offensive tackle out of Washington State. And he's like Dane Brugler, who is one of our favorite um, draft analysts, writes for The Athletic, been on our podcast a time or two. He's got him as his number five overall offensive tackle. Another top ten offensive tackle. Well, there's two. Um, oh, no, one more offensive tackle and then a guard. But uh, Titus Howard from Alabama State is here. 
I honestly didn't get to see much of him. And then Dalton Reisner is a guy that we got to see pretty up close, just happened to be right in front of us for a while um, with the first practice on the North team. And he's the one we mentioned gotten a little skirmish, uh, which was fun to see. But he's uh, debated as to whether he's going to play guard or tackle in the NFL. He came out saying in a little video I saw earlier this week that he's most comfortable at right tackle, but feels like he could play anywhere on the interior too if that's where teams wanted him. You got him right there, Matthew. What? what how long are his arms? Reisner? Yeah. He has uh, 34 and a quarter inch arms. That's That's nice. good. That's nice. So I think he definitely can play tackle. He's got a mean streak to him. He was talking the whole time at practice. Like, that guy, I just like him. I like his attitude. He's like, wants to get in there. He was he was cheering for his teammates. He was cheering for the other offensive linemen when they were doing, like, one-on-one drills. He was getting excited but and feisty. But then also, like, getting aggressive with his teammates whenever he was doing one-on-one drills with them. Yeah. So I just like his mentality of the, of the Risner. Getting a guy like that, playing him at right tackle – and giving us some more flexibility on the line, I, I really like that possibility. That wouldn't cr- kill me if, as like a second-round type option for the Browns. No, for sure. Another guy who I liked when we were watching off of the tackle was built differently is Caleb McGarry. Um, he's, he's kind of the, the longer leaner. He's almost 6'7". Uh, he, he looks like an athlete. He moves like an athlete. Um, definitely a tackle body. Isn't going to be somebody who's going to bump inside. Um, possibly a little underweight. What did he, no, he weighed at three twenty one? So, so that's gonna be fine. Um, thirty three and five eighths. Funny that you said that though. It's from looking at him, the eye test, he looks yeah. yeah he looks he's, thin. He's so, he's so tall. tall. Uh, but he'll he'll definitely be able to. He probably could add more weight to that frame. Yeah. And and play, but he'd be an interesting um, kind of tackle later in the draft. I don't know. I don't know what. People are projecting him, but he's got the athleticism. Uh, probably a little more of a project, not not quite as polished. Which, hey, I feel a little bit better about now that we have a real, or at least a proven offensive line coach that has, yeah. you know. Something that Campin can work with. Yeah. Um, Pete made that great comment yesterday on the podcast about how Campin was coaching five offensive tackles yeah. on the Green Bay line. Like, all of those guys came in as college tackles. Yeah. Center, guard, and tackles. It's just crazy. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if moving forward we're on the offensive line just drafting tackles and trying to see if we can convert them. Well, they're, they're historically the best athletes get put at tackle. I mean, isn't our current offensive line? Did Zeitler play guard? I think, Zeitler, I think Zeitler's always been a guard, but yeah. Okay. Mostly. But, I mean, those guys, guys like that, guys like McGarry, guys like Reisner. I mean, Reisner played tackle, but bump him inside, he'll be just fine. Yep, it's going to be exciting moving forward to have camp in there and probably for a long time having consistency at the offensive line coach position. I mean, where's he going to go? We've talked about that on the pod before, but it's going to be great to develop. Yeah, no, nobody's knocking down the door of the O-line coach to be a head coach or be an offensive coordinator. Yeah, and it worked so well because we only could have done this because Mike McCarthy got fired in Green Bay. Like, he wouldn't have left. We couldn't have just hired him away from Green Bay, but because that happened at the right time for us, we got... Someone who might be there for a while. All right, let's move on to defensive line, which is obviously something that almost every Browns fan is thinking that we need. Interior defensive line um, and maybe some – you can never have too many edge rushers. Um, what did you guys see, people you want to point out? Yeah, a guy that I really liked from um, the North squad out of Western Illinois, probably more of a one-tech. I mean, he's not very big. He's a little spark plug, six foot 320, um, is Kalen Saunders. I know we watched him – he he jumped out that he just seemed happy to be there. Yeah, so he was putting guys, in every ounce of effort that he had. Some guys were kind of kind of walking through some reps or being more cautious, kind of like figuring it out. He he was going full speed, getting up under um, the interior lineman's pads, driving through the whistle. Um, yep. Kind of that effort that you love to see. Looks like a kid who is taking his opportunity, but also just loves playing football and being out there and, and doing it, um, I think would be a good addition to our team as a backup. As a rotational tackle. To our one tech. And <clears throat> even depending on how the, the rest of the roster breaks down, could could play one tech and um, Joby could slide over to the three tech for some, some downs and just kind of have some flexibility there. Because right now we've – Basically got Ogunjobi playing one tech and nobody else. Yeah, so 
Um, there's a couple of guys that Dane's got in this top ten as um, defensive linemen. What, Zach Allen is his number eight ranked um, edge player, and Anthony Nelson is his number ten ranked ed- edge player. So Zach Allen's a defensive end. He's the one that got into that scuffle with Reisner um, out of Boston College. And then uh, Anthony Nelson is out of Iowa. Um, and he's a funny one. Like, we all looked at him and made the comment that he reminds us exactly of Carl Nassib. The guy is tall, thin, and looks stiff. Like, he just looks like that that power rusher that's not going to get a whole lot of bend out of the edge, but he's going to bat some balls down. And Six, seven, 270. Going to work his way back there, try his darndest to get to the quarterback. But Token, token hustle player. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and it just jumped off the screen, off the field basically today. He looked exactly like a car. Yeah, didn't have to say screen. Isn't that weird? It's weird. (laughs) We were actually there. I'm so thrown off by this whole situation right now. We're recording in our Airbnb. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not our Airbnb. This is our mobile studio. That's where we are right now. Our mobile studio. Because I'm a freaking idiot and I didn't pack the actual equipment to hold our microphone. So I'm holding a microphone in my hand and I feel like I have to be so much more attentive like doing it this way. I'm very uncomfortable recording this. Yeah, I like just talking directly into the mic that's right in front of my face and I can do things with my hands. It's a lot more relaxing. It is a lot more relaxing. All right, what's our next position? Um, So we can talk a little bit about Dane said uh, that one of his positions of need for the Browns, which I don't believe as much, is safety. Um, and I think it's interesting. Maybe we can get some depth um, based on where our roster is not going to be this upcoming year, but two years from now. Um, so, what about the safeties? Did you see any? As far as us needing depth, it just depends on how, which guys we were assigned. Yeah. Right? No, exactly. I mean, we kind of rolled out with just three true safeties on our roster all year, and we were relatively healthy, and so it wasn't a big deal. But with Randall, with Peppers, and with uh, what's his face, 26? Kindred. Kindred. Thank you. I'm drawing a blank. Kindred, those were our three safeties, and then we had Body basically as our swing guy that could play in the slot or play safety in the backing up um, Demarius Randall. So, but Body is a free agent. I think he's going to be on the market. So we need to decide if we're returning if he's going to return. And then two of those guys, Kindred and Randall, only have one year left on their deal. So I think, I think all- as, as you're looking at needs, you have to look like where you're going to be a year from now. You don't want to draft a guy like to fill in and is as a rookie and contribute. So I think honestly that could but, be a very but, significant need. But that's how we've always done it. <laughs> that's been the script we've been working with. That's what you have to do when you just kind of it's a turnstile in your front office and yes. it's constantly like a new group of people. When you actually have sustainability, you don't do you don't operate that way. Yes, so for it's sure. a good point. I, I personally, I think I hope we re-sign Randall. I think Randall's been great this past season. He had some incredible games, creating turnovers, and he can step up into the box for sure. I think Randall's a priority, and I don't think you need to work too hard to keep uh, to keep uh, Kindred Kindred, who I'm just never going to remember his name <laughs> uh, on our roster. He is so, he is so forgettable. <laughs> he really kind of is. There's not a whole lot you can say about him, but he's solid. Like, like, I don't think he's a guy that you go and re-sign in free agency because you don't want to pay the premium. But having players like him who can contribute on their rookie deal That's great. is huge. Yeah. Um, and so he's a guy that you let walk just because you don't want to commit the salary cap space. But that's not really a knock on him as a player. We just have other players we'd rather start. Did either of you guys watch the safeties very closely today? I didn't. There weren't many that jumped out. And part of the issue is the defensive backs were all practicing together. There were only a few cornerbacks here this week. I think yes. I think one of the teams only has four on the entire roster. So they're kind of uh, rotating through the drills all at the same time. So it's hard at times to, to pick out players who are get, taking reps at safety at and uh, whatnot. Nasir Adderley, the kid out of Delaware, who a lot of people have is – the top safety in the draft. He's probably the highest-ranked player, like, actually playing in the Senior Bowl. Yeah, he he looked good. I mean, he he made flashes, recovered a fumble. Um, he looks so athletic. Up. Yeah. Like, he's, you just look at him, it's like, okay, I can see how that guy's yeah. the guy. He was getting people in position on 11 v. 11 drills. He he 
Looks good. He's from a small school, but he was not acting like he didn't belong. He'd yeah, is maybe a little undersized. He he seemed thin. I mean, he, and he only weighed in at one ninety five. Everybody said he was really cut though. Like like looked solid. Yeah. So, whatever that means. Rocked. <laughs> is, isn't that what the the draft network guys were referring to? That's a term He's they like rocked. to use. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what? I, I don't think I, anybody's described me as rocked. Never. No. They have not. What about cornerbacks? Did you guys, any cornerbacks jump off the page? One, one for um, me was Jimmy Moreland. He actually went at the weigh-in yesterday. He did not weigh in, and I think that's because he's so undersized. He weighs, it's 5'11", 175 pounds. That's he's what he listed weight. That's what listed. he listed. That's what he listed as, so I'm sure he weighs less than that, and that's why he didn't want to go weigh in. But he had a couple of pass breakups that I saw him closing on the pass really fast and getting to the ball. Um, before he could get to the wide receiver in one-on-one drills that he was really excited about. Um, when you when you weigh that little, you can be that fast. If if you go to the combine, are you allowed to opt out of the weigh-in? <laughs> I doubt it. I think you have to avoid the combine entirely just to uh, not be weighed in front of a bunch of people. Um, and I'm also, get that on, on the record. <laughs> I'm also upset that I didn't look at, uh, Dane mentioned on our podcast, uh, Rock Yasin. Um, I did not get a chance to look at him. Did you guys see how? I was really distracted and super excited that Kyle Brandt uh, uh, replied to our tweet. And I have to admit that I did not see nearly as many of the people from the The South South team team. as the rest, just because, like, one of my favorite people on all of television, like, replied to our tweet. Yeah. Full disclosure, I was also distracted during that time. (laughs) Very excited. Didn't see much of Rock Yasin, but um, maybe we can go back and uh, watch some of the TV coverage. I'm sure he was great. Sure, he has a great name, so he, I'm I'll, sure he's I'll good. I'll give him the benefit any, of the doubt. Anyone else that particularly stuck out to you guys? Any position group doesn't have to be a position in need for the Browns that you guys want to talk about. No, if not, then um, I think we need to talk about this article that was released this morning. Um, <laughs> Seth Wickersham, he, he really dropped a load on Browns fandom. He did, he did. Um, I basically woke up, as I think probably most Browns fans did, and saw this. I, I got the notification late last night, I remember, as but we were drinking, and it was I was not in a state to like commit 30 minutes to reading about the turmoil of the Browns during the Haslam tenure. We were, we were hanging out trying to have some conversations with executives at bars. Um, and that didn't really happen. We ran into Jim O'Neill, but didn't talk to him. That, he, he was present, and that, that we was saw, all we could say. We saw Singletary. We saw Mike Singletary pop in and then leave. I don't know what he was doing. Yeah. But the article. What are your what there's so <laughs> many the things. Article. There's so many things to talk about. I mean, it makes a lot of people look bad. I think it makes some people like look okay. Like I, I don't think it was it cast any sort of negative light on Sashi Brown. It makes the marketing team look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's hard to get past the hashtag DP. It's really the star of the article. If he if he didn't have if he didn't have anything else in there, I mean that would like just carry the whole thing. Pornographic images being cast on the walls of the Browns front was, office was, in Berea for up to twenty minutes yeah. is just a uh, a mental image I'm never gonna get out of. My somebody head. somebody texted us or replied to us or something and said it reminds them of a scene from The Office, and it completely does. What? My question is, there's inappropriate images being projected on the wall in the office, and it takes you 20 minutes to get it down? Um, yeah. 20 minutes to figure out that, you know, this isn't a good idea. And, you know, it's actually totally brownsy. Uh, well, that right there is the ultimate look of ineptitude. <laughs> like, that is the worst look you can possibly have. I want to know, was, was it just one of those things where it's like, oh... The, the company decided to like put this up on the wall and nobody was actually looking at it. And then finally some receptionist like looked up from her desk and it was just like, Oh Probably my some sweet lady. <laughs> some sweet old lady who's been there for 40 years. Oh, have That's mercy on her. That's what DP means. <laughs> have mercy on her. That's <laughs> so if you didn't read the article, Michael, could you give a, a brief recap for our listeners who might not have had the time to read sure. this? It took. It takes a good thirty minutes to churn through because there is so much information on like ineptitude and malpractice, specifically targeting Jimmy Haslam 
and the way that he's running the organization as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the synopsis right there. Is It's basically an in-depth look with some more detail than I think we've ever had because there's a lot of sourced like quotes throughout the entire article. So if you're a Browns fan and you pay any sort of... If you're listening to this, you should read the article. Because <laughs> if you care about the Browns enough to listen to our That's podcast, fair. you should really you should <laughs> should read the article. Um, but I think it just kind of confirms a lot of stuff we've heard and gave some more details into the ineptitude that has kind of taken place in the management of the Browns. And it shows Jimmy Haslam clearly wanting to do his best to like bring this team. His best, he just doesn't know how to do it. Like he just clearly doesn't know what he's doing. He's not a man that sticks to his guns. Um, and so it just kind of follows through like the whole history since he took over from the Banner era to Lombardi and Ray Farmer and the coaching hires and all these sort of things all the way to today. Basically, talked about Sashi a good bit too and how piece. that analytics piece started. Yeah, so there's a handful of pieces that were super intriguing to me to hear how they kind of went down inside the building. One of them was related to Sashi, was that because Sashi was in our building basically from the time that Haslam was hired because he came on as our general counsel and then was kind of bumped up whenever Farmer came around to be involved in personnel stuff a little more closely. So as the general counsel, he had a lot to do with negotiating contracts and then kind of took an added little bit of responsibility on the personnel side of things when Farmer got the GM spot. And another guy that was brought on with Haslam was um, in the front office really to handle more of the business stuff. And that was, oh, what's his name? Alex Shiner. Alex Shiner. And he did a lot of stuff like with the renovations for the stadium and all that sort of stuff. Came from the Cowboys. Well thought of guy in the NFL circles in particular. But apparently those two on their own put together a business plan of in, in a sense uh, and cast a vision for what it would look like to take an outside the box analytical approach to running the team. And we're really upfront, exactly how we've known and, you know, have seen them say publicly even that it was going to take a lot of sacrifice and that they even encouraged if they went down this path and Jimmy got on board, that they encouraged Jimmy to not watch games for two years. Like that is what they said to Jimmy Haslam. Well, that that came from, so they went on like a listening tour. Yes. They met with all these other teams, including the Mets, who was being run by Paul DePodesta. And Sam and Presti with the, the you know, Thunder. The Thunder. They yeah. talked to Billy Bean. It was Theo Epstein yeah. with the Cubs. Um, and that was kind of the resounding, or at least one person from outside sports said, like, Jimmy, if you're going to go down this path, don't show up to any games for two years. He didn't listen. No, and he, he was didn't there prove all the to time. have the patience necessary for this sort of path. But what's amazing to me is that they convinced him after those trips, and he obviously loved De Podesta enough that he brought De Podesta in. But there was there was also a nugget in there when I don't remember what it was referencing, but it was a nugget that said there's always been a race to be the last person to talk to Jimmy before a big decision's made. Yes, and that that like is oh, insightful that's... because. He, he makes these rash decisions, and if if you're the, the last voice that he hears, it's what is sitting in his head, and it's what he acts upon. Well, and Sounds like what Hugh Jackson was doing and was had Jimmy on speed dial. That's yeah, how he survived he would, so he would long. He just constantly talk to him. And he values his own opinion far more than those around him. It was evidenced in here. The, the talk around that Some head of the more co- uncomfortable parts Correct. is when it's, he's outnumbered four to one. But okay, that's the, well, the part I was going to bring up. So the coaching search for when they ended up bringing in Hugh Jackson, but we're looking at a variety of candidates. And the rest of the team that was analyzing things at the executive level all recommended... Um, the Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott, who's proven to be a pretty darn good head coach. Head coach superstar, the Buffalo Bills. So, scraping wins uh, for the he Buffalo Bills. took the Bills to the playoffs two years ago Yes, with Tyrod Taylor. And somehow won a bunch of games with Josh Allen this year. So hats off to the guy. But the room voted four to one. There were shot people in the room. Haslam was the one that voted for Hugh Jackson and ended up going with Hugh Jackson, despite the fact the rest of the executive team wanted Sean McDermott. Who else was in that room? I mean, it was Sashi, DePodesta. 
It's a great question. What else do we think? Shiner probably at the time. I like Shiner. Um, and I maybe 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 Barry. I don't think I don't know if Barry would have been hired yet. Barry got hired after Hugh did, if I remember the sequence a little bit better. I thought he was quick. there. It was pretty quick. Those two things. Anyways, um, what's what's the only thing we can hold on to with this is a hope that Jimmy is a person who learns from his mistakes. There was all the there was some comments throughout the article about how they are they are embarrassed about the fact that they've been failing and a sourced quote from D saying that if they had known it would be this hard they might not have bought the team. Wow, they can sell the team right now. Yeah, and um, so I kind of have a soft spot for them. <laughs> like I feel like they're. They're trying, and they're trying too hard. And so I'm hopeful that – this is just being like an eternal Browns optimist, honestly. But like the fact that they stumbled into a quarterback and have Baker Mayfield, they stumbled into a GM that has identified a good bit of talent in John Dorsey and have set up a structure now but that, that was, makes more sense. Like We didn't stumble into it. That was, kind of, that was kind of the conclusion of the article, though, was that like despite all of this – craziness that's yeah. been going on the browns seem to be on to something now on on a right despite track despite all of their ineptitude and you saw signs of it with the fact that they weren't on the stage whenever they announced freddie kitchens it was just john dorsey and freddie kitchens they have a structure now in place where all these people aren't reporting to the owner where yep. it's stated at one point that jimmy haslam had seven direct reports within the browns organization well, John Dorsey said which is in the like, article... Which is what leads to the being the last guy to talk to... Well, which is great. What, what does he have, two now? Probably De Podesta Yeah, I would guess it's Dorsey. just De Podesta and Dorsey. Well, John Dorsey said in the article that he was like, I flexed my muscles, and that was one of the things I wanted to have happen, was that I was the person that reported to Haslam. So, it's true. We are putting safeguards in place, how you say. Yes. Um, but also, don't you think that if you... We're building up a story for this many years of an ownership group that you could come up with a story of all of these different things for almost any NFL team that would make them look horrible. Probably true to a certain Probably degree. true. You could write an you article could. this long that would look this bad, maybe you except could. for the DP thing, um, <laughs> and, 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 and make it seem like we were completely and utterly and totally inept. Yeah, you could cherry pick, but there's also, there's also situations that weren't included in this article. Like one notable like absence was the AJ McCarron trade that didn't happen, which I feel like there's gotta be maybe he's they're keeping that, that crap quiet. Maybe, that one's just like information hasn't come out about that one. Well, yeah, Sashi did that for us. Well, there yeah, there's that's what I choose to believe. <clears throat> but like maybe that's a whole other Seth Wickersham story that he's he's that's yeah, gold. He's, if there's one thing I want to know all the details of, it's that it's, it's that, that and day. the the George Conkinas firing. Yeah, but he's not even significant enough for me to care. Like it was, it was, and it was long enough ago that nobody cares anymore. Um, the other significant thing in this article was how much of a dumbass Ray Farmer is. Oh how much of a pushover Ray Farmer is. So they when talk it talked about, about his first draft, draft yeah. which given that 2014 draft, he was hired like in the middle of the draft cycle. So I think he came in like in February or something like that before the draft, and he basically just was told he was the GM. This article indicates that Farmer didn't even like interview for it. Haslam basically just told him, okay, you're my new GM. Which is for- funny. If he wasn't a minority, that would be a violation of the NFL's rules, the Rudy rule, because <laughs> okay. you have to interview candidates for those minority All right, so for those of you that don't know, uh, off the top of your head, the 2014 draft is when we drafted Justin Gilbert and Johnny Manziel in the first round. So that's the draft we're referring to. At number eight and then 22. And the way it was positioned, and like, you, I do think you have to take anything like this with a grain of salt. It's Seth Wickersham, like, hearing stuff from sources and, like, then reporting that, right? So, but the way it was talked about in this article was Ray Farmer knew that Mike Pettin wanted a corner and liked Justin Gilbert. And so that's why he took Justin Gilbert. It's been so widely reported that they had not done their due diligence on Justin Gilbert. They did not visit his pro day. They did not do... Meet with him at the combine. They did not meet with him at the combine, dig into his background. And like all of those off-the-field stuff is like what really crushed us on the Justin Gilbert thing because the dude just didn't care enough about football and didn't have the drive. So he wanted to appease the head coach he was paired with for that first pick. 
And then they had determined that they wanted to take a quarterback, either Blake Bortles, who was picked ahead of anywhere where we were in that draft, or Johnny Manziel in the first round. Or in the second round, we they were looking at either Derek Carr or Teddy Bridgewater. Oh, both would have been so, so much better. So apparently front office, oh, a lot of the people in the front office, his scouts and everybody, wanted Teddy Bridgewater. But he knew that Jimmy Haslam wanted Johnny Manziel. And so he traded up in the draft when Johnny came down and drafted him for the owner. And then went on and felt like he needed to prove himself and I think felt bad about basically giving up two first-round picks and didn't have any gumption to pick the guys that he thought was best. And so when the Texans came calling and offered a freaking second-round pick, at the top of the second round. Number 33 overall. Number 33 overall for Brian Hoyer. So this was after we picked Johnny Manziel. He decided to grow a spine right there. (laughs) Amazing. Which was the worst time to start making your own decisions. Any other time, Farmer. Made his own call to, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Because, you know, Brian Hoyer is, you know, who we're going to roll with. And did not take that top pick in the second round, um, which is absolutely asinine to me that you would pass up that opportunity to get a – the number 33 pick. Basically another first-round pick. Yeah. Who, who could we have gotten with that pick? So the, the Texans um, didn't get great value with that pick. They drafted Xavier Suofilo, guard from UCLA, who's, who's still in the league. He's still playing, um, but not great. The next pick was Demarcus Lawrence, defensive end. I'd take him. Boise State. The Browns, at the third pick of the second round, drafted Joel Batonio. Good pick. Great pick. Great value. Derek Carr was drafted next. By the Oakland Raiders. We wouldn't have taken him there because, because we just we, drafted Johnny, we but drafted Johnny. would have been nice. Um, other guys we could have drafted who were drafted shortly after that, LaMarcus Joyner, Jordan Matthews, Tim Jernigan, Stephon Tuitt, Trent Murphy, um, Devontae Adams. Yeah, I would trade all, any of those all guys. Decent, decent players, you know. Straight up for Brian Hoyer any day of the if, week. Earlier in the, um, in the article they said we were targeting Brandon Cooks. In that, with that second first-round pick that we used to take Johnny Menzel. Um, Cooks ended up getting drafted 20th. We picked Menzel at 22nd. But if we were targeting a wide receiver, we could have drafted Allen Robinson um, at the top of the second round. Um, there's just a lot of different, different options, different players. That, that early second-round pick It's a good really, pick. really, really good. It's a good pick. But it is – I can understand Farmer. It was a bold move. He was a starting quarterback at the time. Very well liked by the fans. He ended up starting in the beginning of that next season and playing pretty decently well, and he played well that year. Until Farmer started texting the coaches and telling them to play Johnny. And <laughs> I wonder, ended up getting suspended for the I wonder, first four I wonder games why of the he did that. Season. Hmm, maybe. Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if he was getting a directive from. I wonder, from I wonder if it was maybe a push from old Jimmy Boy. Yeah. So that, that article was an interesting insight because it provided some details that hadn't previously been disclosed. You know, with um, I think it, it had been pretty well known that Jimmy Haslam was the, the driving force behind the Johnny Manziel pick with the, the homeless man who told Jimmy Haslam to pick Johnny Manziel. It's a terrible look. Um, this, this article talked about Jimmy not liking Teddy Bridgewater because of something that was wrong with his handshake. I have... No idea what that was about, um, but it provided some insight into the dysfunction. Ray Farmer would have been much better served to to do his job how he, he thought, thought it, should, it be should be done, and if that wasn't acceptable, deal with the consequences then, because you, you that would keep you from drafting Justin Gilbert. It would keep you from drafting Johnny Menzel just to appease your owner, because at the end of the day. You can do what your owner tells you to do, but if it chooses turns out to not be the right decision, like you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt that you were just doing what the owner said. Like, yeah, that's not how it works. It's ultimately going to fall back on you. And I I think overall in the story, it's disappointing to wake up to a story like that and hear all of this dysfunction that's going on in your organization. But that is not the frame of mind that the Cleveland Browns are in right now. That is not the direction that we're going. That is not who we are going to be next season with this new structure, with everyone reporting to John Dorsey, John Dorsey going to Jimmy Haslam. And I think that that is what people need to take away 
from this article that that is something that is a thing of the past. We are not that those Cleveland Browns anymore. Yes, we still have the same owner. And you ask Tennessee fans, um, and they're not big fans of Jimmy Haslam. Um, we're from, just to give you a little background, we are from Nashville. So we are surrounded by a lot of University of Tennessee fans. Um, and he was one of the biggest backers of that organization and strong-armed his way into a lot of different things and has not left them in a good place. But the Browns, quite frankly, are in a good place. We got our quarterback. We got our running back. We got some wide receivers. Our defense is looking together, and we got our head coach that everyone feels good about. So, well, quite frankly, I'm not going to lose too much sleep over this article um, because it's all things that are in the past, and I feel like we're set up well and we have a good structure. Ironically, closing the loop on that, one of the things that um, Wickersham tweeted out afterwards was a little a sheet that basically outlined. It was basically a one-page like document that outlined all of the goals and the path for the Browns to succeed. That was basically laid out in the Sashi Brown de Podesta regime at the beginning of it. And one of the biggest ones was find a quarterback at all costs, no matter what it takes, like get the quarterback and the right quarterback in place. And that's been achieved. That's been achieved. And it's largely a result of everything that they did to put us in place to draft Baker Mayfield. And we finally got the guy, and I agree with you. I I hope that that is going to be something that will overshadow some of the poor decision-making. That probably will still linger, um, given the fact we still have the same ownership. But when you have some of those key important pieces in place, um, sometimes all of the dysfunction isn't as significant or impactful. And winning covers a multitude of sins. If we just start winning games, these things are going to take a back burner. And I'm sure these things go on in the Patriots organization, too. They have a focus on keeping them under wraps. But winning is going to change everything, and it seems like we are on the right track. Yep. All that to say, we are positive here at Sin of Our Fathers Podcast, and we think the Browns are on the up and up. Next year's our year. We're going to go to the playoffs, hopefully the Super Bowl. Why not? Never hurts to hope. Seven more wins than we got the previous year. Super Bowls in Miami. We're staying on that track. That. Seven, yeah. win, seven win track, at least 14 wins next year. Sounds good. Minimum. Yeah. Minimum. Minimum. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Eternally optimistic. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Um, we really appreciate you guys. Um, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Sin of Our Fathers. Um, like and subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars if you feel so inclined. If you think it deserves a five-star rating, we're not here for charity. Honestly, we just want you to, if you enjoy the podcast and you listen to it often, um, we'd really appreciate that. Um, and shave with Barbasol. If you visit Barbasol.com and you use discount code Browns, you can get $2 off a shave kit order. You can select from convenient refill intervals of one, two, or four months, and they're really nice razors. They sent us some. I still use them often. I haven't even had to change the blade. Yep. had it for months. It's there great. It's really an oversight on Barbasol's part. Oh, yeah. No. No, good products and and brand loyalty is much more significant than having the the repeat refills. Planned obsolescence is illegal, Matthew. That's <laughs> Apple gets away with it though, so who cares? You can do whatever you want. It's really, just um, false advertising. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. We appreciate you. Go Browns.